Uh, this is a product recall notice. I don't know if you've ever had to worry about one. I hope not. But this one was actually issued by Dick Smith a number of years ago. It seems as though at the time a range of portable DVD players that they were selling were faulty. What happened was the internal lithium-ion batteries were overheating, so much so that they were becoming a fire hazard. And so what they wanted customers to do was to stop using the DVD players, return them to the store that they bought them from, and get a refund, or better still, to get a replacement product, a new product, that did what the original product was meant to do. Now, I mention that because today's passage is a little bit like one of these recall notices, where something faulty is being replaced by something new, something that does what the original was supposed to do. In today's passage, you see, the nation of Israel, who at one time was called the Son of God, is being replaced by Jesus, the new Son of God, the true Son of God. And what we'll see throughout today's passage is that Jesus will do what Israel was meant to do. As the true Son of God, Jesus will finally bring light to a world in darkness. He will finally bring God's promised blessing to the nations, things that Israel was meant to do. Now Matthew helps us to see all that in the passage by firstly establishing Jesus as the, as the Son of God. And then he lets us into this kind of private interaction between Jesus and the devil, where three times Jesus is put to the test, but where three times he comes through with flying colours so as to confirm that he is indeed the Son of God. And finally then, Matthew show, shows us Jesus acting as the Son of God, bringing light to darkness, bringing blessing to the nations. So let's start uh, by thinking about Jesus being established as the Son of God, the new Son, remember, who replaces the faulty nation of Israel. And to do that, we're actually going to go back to before today's reading, and we're actually going to start by going all the way back to Exodus, so as to see where Israel was first called the Son of God, because that'll help us to better understand and appreciate what it means that Jesus is the new Son of God who replaces Israel. So back to the Exodus, and the Exodus was really the birth of the nation of Israel. Before that, you might remember there was just kind of Abraham and his family, and then Isaac and his family, and then Jacob and his family kind of wandering around, and they ended up in Canaan, and eventually uh, Jacob and his family ended up in Egypt, where they were put into slavery, and at that point, God set about rescuing them out of Egypt so that they might be his treasured possession, his chosen nation, a people who would worship him, a people who would obey him, a people who would then take his blessing to the nations of the earth. And so God sent Moses to tell Pharaoh to let the people go, and significantly, one of the things he told Moses to say was this. Say to Pharaoh... This is what the Lord says. Israel is my firstborn son. And I told you, let my son go so he may worship me. So you see, at the very birth of the nation of Israel, right from the beginning, 
God calls them his firstborn son. Now that's an idea that's picked up periodically from time to time throughout the Old Testament. So for example, in the book of Hosea, God says these words. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. See, there it is again. From its very infancy, ever since it was a child, in fact, the nation of Israel has been called God's son. Now, the tragedy, of course, is revealed in what God says next in Hosea. Because after saying that he loves his son Israel and that he's called them to himself out of Egypt, God goes on to say, But the more I called Israel, the further they went from me. And he goes on to say they ended up worshipping Baals and serving images. Sadly, you see, Israel completely failed to live up to being God's son. A bit like those DVD players from Dick Smith, something was faulty, something went wrong. And so they had to be replaced by something new, something that would do what the original was meant to do, something that would obey God, something that would take his blessing to the nations. In this case, of course, Israel was replaced by Jesus. And you can start to see that in Matthew chapter 2, where these words from Hosea are repeated, only here in Matthew they're now applied to Jesus, which ought to be an indication for us that Jesus is being established as the new Son of God. So if you've still got your Bible open to Matthew chapter 4, just flick back a page or two to Matthew chapter 2, and we'll pick it up from verse 13. And as I read, just listen out for the way, uh, listen out for where these words from Hosea are repeated, but applied to Jesus. So Matthew chapter 2, verse 13. An angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said, take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. See, what God said in Hosea about the nation of Israel, it is now being fulfilled in Jesus. Israel was the son of God. God called them out of Egypt, but the more he called, remember, the further away they went, And so now Jesus is being established as the Son of God. A fact that's reinforced in the next chapter, Matthew uh, chapter 3, where God says even more plainly that Jesus is his Son. So have a look at Matthew 3 and verse 17. We looked at this briefly last week. It's where Jesus was coming up out of the water, having been baptised, and God's voice called out from heaven and said, This is my Son. Now, it couldn't really be any more plain at that point, could it? This is my son. With those words, Jesus is clearly being established as the son of God. God is saying, this one, Jesus, who you can see right here, he has replaced the nation of Israel. He's my son. But look, what we've just seen of Israel as the son of God... I guess the lingering question at this point is, 
will Jesus be any better of a son than Israel was? Or will he just make the same mistakes that they made? Will he really be able to do what Israel was meant to do? And I think it's with that question in mind that Matthew immediately now leads us into this interaction between Jesus and the devil, where Jesus is tested three times. Because it's actually through these testings that Jesus is not just established to be the Son of God, but confirmed to be the Son of God. The Son who will indeed worship God without wavering. The Son who will use his power not to further his own interests, but to further the will of his Father. The Son who will learn obedience to the Father through suffering and through testing. Because in the end, it's that costly, humble obedience to the Father that really confirms that Jesus is in fact the true Son of God, the one who will succeed where Israel failed. So let's have a look. We'll work our way through these three testings fairly quickly and hopefully along the way we'll build up this picture of Jesus' unwavering allegiance and absolute commitment to the Father. So Matthew chapter 4 and verse 1. Jesus was led by the Spirit into the desert to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Now the real test here, I think, is to see whether or not Jesus will in fact make the same mistake that Israel made. Because you see, in a similar scenario, when Israel wandered in the wilderness for 40 years, they were hungry as well. But their mistake, of course, was to grumble and to complain and to whinge and to cry out to God and to demand food. Their mistake was to actually say to God that they would prefer to go back to Egypt and die there in slavery where they had plenty of food rather than to be hungry with God in the wilderness. Their mistake was to doubt God and to doubt his goodness. But Jesus, on the other hand, he remains resolute. His answer shows his utter determination to be humbly obedient to the Father. Verse 4, Jesus answered, It is written, Man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. See, Jesus, he won't doubt God. He won't question his goodness. Instead, he will trust his word and this humble obedience and commitment to his Father, it's confirmation that he is, in fact, the true Son of God. But at this point, you can almost see the cogs ticking over in the devil's mind because as soon as he sees Jesus use scripture to answer this test, he decides to use scripture himself to put Jesus to the test. And so he quotes from Psalm 91. Let's pick it up from verse 5. The devil took Jesus to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down. For, don't you know, it's written, he will command his angels concerning you and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Now this is a clever move, I reckon, quoting scripture to Jesus to try and put him to the test. 
But Jesus isn't that easily fooled. He, he knows it's just another subtle test to see whether or not he'll make the same mistake that Israel made. Because again, what the devil really wants Jesus to do this time is in fact to put God to the test. Just like Israel did at Massa in the wilderness. Back then, you might remember, they had no water. And so again, they grumbled and they complained and they whinged and they cried out to God and they demanded water from him. And so Moses ended up eventually striking the rock with his staff and water came out. It was the second time in the wilderness that Israel was put to the test and it was the second time they failed because again they doubted God and they tested him. But here at his second testing, Jesus again remains resolute. He remains defiant. He again shows his determination to be humbly obedient to the Father. Verse 7, Jesus again answered him, It is also written, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. You see, again, unlike Israel, Jesus won't doubt God. He won't question his goodness. He won't put him to the test, which is again further confirmation that he is the true son of God. Now, at this point, the devil changes tack slightly and he offers Jesus a kind of shortcut. Essentially, what he says to him next is, look, you don't really need to worry about all that humble obedience stuff. You don't really need to learn obedience through suffering. There's actually an easier way. I can give you everything right now. I can give you all the kingdoms of the earth and all their glory. I can, in fact, make you a king, a messiah even. And look, all you've got to do, all you've got to do is just worship me. It's another test. It's just not quite as subtle this time, is it? It's another test to see whether Jesus is really committed to living in humble obedience to the Father which is how the true Son of God should live. So how does Jesus respond this time? Verse 10, Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And with that, the devil does leave. And we get final confirmation that Jesus is the true Son of God. He's the real deal. I don't know if you've seen those Toyota Genuine used car ads on TV at the moment. You know, the ones with the guy going around checking everything off. Check, 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 a bit like that. The point of it is, right, that by the time they've done their 100-point check, you're guaranteed of getting the real deal, a genuine Toyota used car. I think that's the point of this whole testing narrative. Jesus has been tested three times. Three times he's come through with flying colours, confirming for us that he is the real deal, confirming for us that he will steadfastly obey the will of God, confirming that he is the true son of God. He won't make the same mistakes Israel made. In the face of temptation, in the face of testing, he will live in humble obedience and absolute commitment to his father. And friends, you know, that ought to be a tremendous comfort to us, actually. Not because it gives us an example that we should necessarily follow, but because what all this means is 
that Jesus actually knows what it's like to suffer. He knows what it is to be tested. He knows what temptation is. He's been there before. And so he can sympathise with us in our sufferings and our temptations. He can help us. This is how Hebrews talks about it. He was tempted in every way just as we are, yet was without sin. And because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. See, these testings and temptations of Jesus, they assure us that whatever form our testings and temptations might take, we're actually not alone in that. Jesus has been there before. He knows what it's like. In fact, in many ways, he knows what it's like even better than we do because he never gave in. He was without sin. And so he sympathises with us and he helps us. But actually way better than that is the fact that Jesus' obedience to the Father makes it possible for him to actually intercede for us before the Father, to plead for us before him, to win salvation for us. Because although he was a son, he learned obedience from what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. And friends, that is really the work of the true Son of God. To obey the Father and to bring salvation to the nations. That's what Israel should have done. That's what Jesus does do. Bring God's blessing to the nations. Make a special people for God, a chosen people, a treasured possession. That's the work of the Son of God. And so look, it's really no surprise that having established Jesus as the Son of God and having confirmed that Jesus is the true Son of God, Matthew now goes on to show us Jesus acting as the Son of God, bringing light to a world in darkness, bringing life to those living in the shadow of death. So let's pick it up from Matthew 4 and verse 12. When Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he returned to Galilee. Leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali. Now look, why all these details about Jesus moving from town to town and going to live in Zebulun and Naphtali? They're not just random details. Matthew puts it all in deliberately so as to show us Jesus acting as the Son of God. Because you see, all these details help us to see how Jesus is fulfilling Isaiah's prophecy about someone who would actually pop up in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali, who would bring blessing to the nations by bringing light to the darkness. Verse 14, this was all to fulfill what was said through the prophet Isaiah. Land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali, the way to the sea along the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. 
what Matthew wants us to see here is Jesus fulfilling that prophecy from Isaiah, acting as the true son of God. With his arrival in Zebulun and Naphtali, light has now broken into darkness. A light that brings life has dawned on those living in the shadow of death. And you know, in that same chapter in Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 9, it goes on to say that this one who brings light to darkness will also bring abundant blessing to the people and they will rejoice like they have never rejoiced before. He will shatter the yoke that burdens his people. He will take away the rod of their oppressors. When he turns up, the things that were once used for war will be burned up because they will no longer have any use. He will be called Wonderful Counselor because he will have compassion on his people. He will be called Mighty God because he will reign in power over those he has made. He will be called Everlasting Father because he will love and guide and teach his children with gentleness. He will be called Prince of Peace because he will establish the subjects of his kingdom in safety and security. In that same chapter in Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 9, it says that when this true Son of God comes, the kingdom will in fact be cut off from Israel and given to him. And he will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom he will establish and uphold justice and righteousness forever. Because you see, friends, those are the things the true Son of God will do. Those are the things Jesus is doing. Bringing God's blessing to the nations. Bringing light to darkness. Now, I guess the real question for us in all this is, or perhaps the real question for you is would you rather stay in the darkness or will you come into the light you might remember this uh, back in 2006 the Beaconsfield mine in Tasmania collapsed of the 17 people who were in the mine at the time 14 escaped immediately one was killed and the remaining two, Brant Webb and Todd Russell, were trapped far underground in a small part of the mine that managed to not uh, be crushed. And they were trapped there in pitch darkness. It took two weeks of drilling through rock and rubble to finally reach those two men. And when the rescuers finally broke through into the cavern, the first thing they heard was, I can see your light. And as those two men finally emerged from the mine shaft after two weeks in darkness, I can still remember the images of the Beaconsfield crowds who had gathered outside cheering, of Brant and Todd punching the air and hugging each other and just weeping in this raw outpouring of unbridled and real joy and relief and gratitude as these two men were rescued out of absolute blackness and brought into the light, as they were quite literally brought back from a place of almost certain death to the land of the living. And friends, it is that kind of raw, unbridled, real 
joy and relief and gratitude that floods our world. And that should flood our hearts as well as Jesus, the true Son of God, turns up. Because he really does bring light to darkness. He brings life where there was certain death. Imagine if that day, Brant Webb and Todd Russell had have been brought to the surface, they had have looked around and then they had have said, look fellas, thanks, but you know what, we actually prefer it down there in the darkness, we're just going to head back down, see you later. How ridiculous would it be? Just wouldn't happen, would it? And yet, friends, that is exactly how so many people respond to Jesus. He has brought light to darkness. In an impersonal world, Jesus wants a personal relationship with you. In a world where you are essentially meaningless, one nameless, faceless person in a sea of billions... Jesus knows you and he wants to make you his child, his treasured possession. In a world that is full of pain and agony and suffering, Jesus offers you relief. In a world of rejection and betrayal and hurt, Jesus offers unconditional love and acceptance. In a world full of despair, Jesus offers hope. A certain, real, sure hope. In a world rendered meaningless because of death, a world where you and I live under the constant shadow of death, Jesus promises eternal life. And yet, you know, so many people turn their back on him. Instead of receiving that light and life with gratitude and joy, they actually choose, willingly choose, to go back and live in the darkness. Isn't that dumb? It's not just dumb, it is utterly tragic. And friends, that's why Jesus' last words in this section are so important. Have a look, verse 17. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. Friends, if you are deliberately choosing to stay in the darkness, then please know this. Jesus wants you to repent. He wants you to change your mind. He wants you to come out of the darkness. He wants you to come out... Come to him, to the one who offers hope and peace and life. So will you? Will you repent? Will you come to Jesus? He is the true son of God. He brings light where otherwise there is only darkness. He brings blessing to the peoples on earth. He brings the offer of life to us who are living in the shadow of death. So will you come to him? Let me pray.
Our great God and loving Heavenly Father, we praise you because you are the creator of the heavens and the earth and you are the one who made us. Father, we confess that so often we sin against you and we reject you and we ignore you. And yet, Father, in your great mercy, it has been your plan all along to make a special people for yourself, to bring your blessing to the nations of the earth. Father, we thank you that we've seen this morning that that is all fulfilled in your Son, Jesus, the true Son of God, the true Israel. And Father, help us not to ignore the fact that he has indeed come to bring light and life to us living in the shadow of death. Father, help us not to be so foolish as to turn our backs on him and to remain living in the darkness. We pray these things in his name and for your glory. Amen.